audio check. On this episode, we have a pharmacist from the Georgia Poison Center. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of RX Radio. I'm your host, Richard Waif, and I have a very special guest today, uh, Dr. Philip House from the uh, Georgia Poison Center. Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Richard. I appreciate you letting me come on board. I'm excited to have you on here because, uh, as always, you know, m- most of the other episodes involve talking to pharmacists, kind of doing different things out in the field. And I think uh, poison uh, control and, and being at a poison center is is no different from that. So I'm excited to kind of jump in here and talk about like your day to day, talk about, you know, what you love about it, what's kind of tough about it. Um, but before we get into all that, can you start by just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a Southerner from the very start. Uh, I grew up in a very small town in South Alabama. Uh, when I was growing up there, it was 400 people, and now it's almost 300 people. So it's a very small, very small town that I grew up in. Um, but I moved away. I went to college and got a bachelor's degree in uh, computer science. And I tried my hand at that for a few years, but found that I was still interested in medication and medicine, medicine, medicine therapy, that type of thing, and decided to go back and get my PharmD, which I did. Uh, I started at the University of Georgia in 2005, and I graduated in 2009. Uh, and I found that that was more interesting to me. Um, because it added the people element more than I was used to having it added. I was used to working as a computer programmer in a back room in a cubicle uh, with very little interaction with the um, with the public. Uh, and that's a complete 180-degree change from pharmacy where I'm dealing with people on a regular basis all day long. And I think I like that better. Yeah. But I worked at uh, Publix Pharmacy for almost 10 years as a retail pharmacist. Uh, and then I met with one of my colleagues at a um, networking support group I go to every couple of weeks, and she indicated that there was an opening at the Georgia Poison Center, and I thought this could be very interesting, uh, something different than retail. Uh, so I applied for the job, and I didn't get it the first time. Uh, one of my best friends actually got the position, but uh, luckily three months later they were advertising for the same position uh another position I had open and I interviewed again and I got that position uh, and I'm happy to be there today. Nice. So now did they add, did they add a position or were like, it's a grow, it was a growing kind of um, department it, of pharmacists or, or it, it was a, leave? it was a growing department and not just pharmacists, but pharmacists, doctors and nurses. Um, so they happened to have another position that became available and I had interviewed previously um, and so they were familiar with me already. And when I expressed interest in the other position that came open, uh, they interviewed me again and I got the position that time. Nice. That's awesome. I mean, what a solid uh, example of just like kind of not giving up on something that you kind of want. So De- definitely. Yeah. And uh, I think, I think they saw that in me that I was interested in the position and I was persistent and reaching out to them over time. Uh, and I did, I do think that helped my chances. Yeah. Now just for, context for some listeners you said your your entire town had about 400 people at the time that you grew up there when i grew up there it was 400 people and now officially it's actually around 288 
Uh, and the funny thing about it is the sign in the town has the population and it says, and still growing. <laughs> um, so wow. it's, it's, it's amusing, but it's, it's, it's actually sad too, because uh, it's a place that I grew up loving. Uh, and over time, I'm seeing it slowly disappear into the cotton fields and peanut fields. Uh, yeah. And the landmarks that I knew as a child are no longer there. And that's that's heartbreaking to me. Well, what's crazy is that my graduating class uh, in high school was 800 people. <laughs> so we. I think my hometown was 800 people during the 1940s, you know, during the time of the World War II, that type of thing. But it started diminishing after that. Um, and... Yeah. I won't say it's disappeared at this point, but for uh, I don't know if you remember in the 1990s when a lot we started offshoring a lot of jobs to Asia, Central America, and such. One of the major employers in my county did the same thing, and they sent jobs to Mexico and then to the Far East, uh, and that really took the economic spirit out of the county. Uh, so a lot of the people left the area when they couldn't find jobs there anymore. Mm. I'm sure automation also played a role. Um that's tough, but yeah, we, we definitely have some, uh, some starkly different backgrounds, but, um, now, uh, in, when you saw that that position was open, I feel like, you know, there might've been other ideas that you had in your mind about what else you can do as a pharmacist. What, what kind of particularly piqued your interest as to like why you decided to go into that field? Well, well, candidly, it, it was another job that wasn't retail, and I'm not knocking retail. Retail has been very good to me, but retail is very much an assembly line type situation in practice, even though we don't say that. We do MTM, medication therapy management. We do patient counseling and a number of other things, flu clinics, et cetera. But in retail, a large part of what you're still doing is putting medicine in a bottle, counting it, verifying it, verifying the prescription, putting it in a bag and giving it to the patient. This was something different than that, uh, and I found that enticing. Um, I was also looking at positions where I could write. I'm interested in writing uh, and communication in general. So if I could find a job where I was able to use my communication skills and right technically i would have been interested in that as well and this job does require a good bit of writing because we have to you know create a soap note for every encounter both with the public and with you know hospitals medical professionals so i am able to write and it does hone your ability to write precisely uh, because you're trying to get as much information in a clear concise manner uh in a short period of time and also in a very abbreviated format uh for use later if it's needed yeah i can definitely see the uh the repetitiveness and nature of what we're doing what what community pharmacists do uh and, and i think that it's a you know we're in a period now where it's kind of growing pains where i feel like at some point pharmacy is going to break away from that like assembly line type of role because of automation is just going to happen but there are some like my wife she loves she loves a consistent job where it's like you know some people, I just like the role where it's uh, the same thing all the time and they're kind of used to that. Right. Whereas like, I feel like people like you and you and me might really want a job or, or enjoy a job that like everything's different all the time and there's always new things to, to um, you know, to deal with. So um, sometimes I it's like, a, I, I didn't interrupt you. Go ahead. Good. No, I like some consistency. 
Uh, and some things I do like to be the same every day. I'm kind of OCD in some ways. I want my stapler in a certain place. You know, I want my phone on the left side of me or, you know, that type of thing. But there are some things where if you're doing the same task over and over, I feel like I'm a widget and a machine. Mm. And I feel like I lose my humanity somewhat yeah. in that in that role. And I don't I don't care for the way that feels. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people will definitely agree with you. I, I mean, I mean, I, I felt the same way. I mean, I, I the repetitive the repetitiveness of that a lot of times was hard for me. And um, but then also sometimes the. I mean, it could be pretty different from day to day too, depending on the type of pharmacy you're at too. So I mean, right. Um, but e- either way, let's uh, let's talk about now. I, I at some point I do want to go into like the challenges and what you love about the role. But what is uh, and we just funny we just kind of talked about typical you know same day to day routines. But can you try to describe to us like what a typical day is like um, at the Poison Center as a pharmacist? Absolutely. So I work in a call center environment. So I'm setting. We we have some of our specialists in poison information who are able to work from home certain days of the week, uh, and then we come into the office on certain days of the week. But we've got a bullpen of sorts, which is basically a call center with uh, large uh, TV screens that show the queue and how many calls are in the queue, who's up next for a call, that type of thing, the duration of a certain call, how many calls we've gotten from care versus uh, the outside lay community. Um, we're constantly looking at those metrics to make sure that we're doing our job properly. But basically I sit there and I take calls from the public and from emergency rooms throughout the state of Georgia. I might get a call from uh, a parent whose child has eaten diaper rash cream. And I try to calm that parent down and let them know this is not a toxic emergency. I give them some things that they can do, some things to look out for, what to expect. And if there's any escalation in symptoms, I tell them to call me back and we might refer them into the emergency room if we think it's necessary. I get other calls from an emergency room, uh, possibly one of the children's hospitals in Atlanta or a remote hospital that's very rural out in the countryside. Uh, It might be a snake bite. It may be a dog bite. Uh, it could be a person with mental health issues who has ingested five or six different drugs in an attempt to harm themselves. Uh, and what we do then is look at the literature, look at the situation that we've been des- that has been described to us by the medical professional, and we try to come up with a treatment plan. Uh, we let them know, you know what the monitoring parameters are, what the labs that they should order are, and what the gold standard for treatment in that particular situation is. Uh, and we have to adjust that constantly because every situation is different. And if you ingest one thing in isolation, it may behave one way in your body. But if you take something that changes how your body works in addition to that, then that can change the whole formula. So I'm not doing that in a vacuum. I have toxicologists on call that are on call 24-7. So I've got certain criteria that I try to look at myself, and if it exceeds what I'm comfortable dealing with or what the poison center has determined that is beyond the scope of my job, then I call the toxicologist and explain the situation to he or she, and then either we get on the phone with the doctor or nurse together, or they give me directions, and then I follow up on those directions. But we basically take the initial call, offer those recommendations on how to treat it, uh, wait for the labs to come back and make further recommendations based on that. And then we follow the patient through the course of their treatment 
at the hospital. And in some cases, I had a child recently who swallowed a penny. We still send them into the emergency room that they swallow a penny to get an x-ray to make sure that the penny isn't lodged somewhere above their stomach and would require removal. And I may get another call the same night from someone who is suicidal and ingested 240 Tylenol mm-hmm. or acetaminophen 500 milligram tablets. Uh, and that's a major emergency. So you, you really get the gamut of uh, situations and we treat them all seriously and we treat them all uh, as if they're the only thing going on at the moment while we're on the phone with them. Now, is there a certain type of metric of volume where, for example, like mo- most pharmacies, obviously there's like high volume pharmacies and lower volume pharmacies, but there, there can always be a metric of like, oh, okay, we did, you know, 300 prescriptions a day. Do you have some sort of metric where it's it's a normal amount of calls that you're getting per day um, uh, at the center when you're working? The poison center has metrics for what is a busy day and what is not a busy day. I don't have those at the top of my mind currently. I see just my piece of it. And for me, a busy night would be more than 20 phone calls in my eight-hour shift. Mm. Um, but again, it would depend. If it were 20 phone calls from a home caller, and they were all for diaper rash cream or someone who maybe received a taste of uh, a bug spray or something, uh, I might be able to deal with five or six of those calls in the course of an hour. But if it's a very complicated hospital call, I may need 45 minutes to deal with one particular exposure. So if you randomly get six or seven very complicated hospital calls during your shift, that could easily consume a large portion of your shift. Um, so just the number themselves, the number itself of how many calls you got isn't necessarily indicative of how, how much work you're doing or how mm-hmm. serious the work you're doing. Because, you know, there are a number of things that we say, give them a drink of water, uh, and watch them for two hours and they should be fine to go about playing for the rest of the day. If it's a home call, you know, but if it's a hospital call, you've got some calls that, you know, require multiple follow-ups during your shift and then, uh, discussion with a toxicologist multiple times and possibly having those two doctors talk to each other. So, and you have to act as a scribe in that situation and document all the interaction that's going on. Now in today's world, uh, you know, there's, I feel like digital is obviously becoming a a major role in every company and um, every service that's offered. Is there a, is there a way for, uh, people or the general public and maybe ne- maybe not necessarily just in the, the Georgia poison center, but maybe you might know of something that, that, uh, some other companies don't have heard of this. Is there a, like a text line that people can kind of text into or email like a question, obviously that we're not assuming that this is like emergency, but like if they just had like a general question, is there like text, uh, lines available for that? I guess, I don't know what you would call it, but that sounds like it'd be I something d- cool. I don't know the answer to that. I'll be honest with you, Richard. I know that for ourselves at our poison center, we take calls via the national poison hotline, which is 800-222-1222. But we also uh, have text message conversations with people. They can go to the uh, Georgia Poison Center website and they can actually do a chat with us if you want to. I said a a text message, but I'm in a chat. So you can open a chat window and chat with a poison specialist uh, that way if you don't want to talk to them on the phone or if you don't want to talk to us on the phone. Uh, And we do take several of those each night. Uh, I think the phone is probably more efficient in a lot of cases 
purpose. You can ask nuanced questions and you can listen to tone of voice. And if you've got someone in the background, if you're calling on a person and that person is crying in the background, that might lead us to ask other questions that we would not have if we didn't have that audio reinforcement going on over the telephone. So, yeah. but we, we do take them both ways. That's pretty cool. I, I, I didn't, I didn't think about having the online chat. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Now that national yeah. number, if someone calls that national number, that number, is it specifically to Georgia or would it, would that person be redirected to their local poison center? That's a good question. And, and the answer is it does redirect based on the area code you are calling from. So if you're in, if you're in Mississippi, but you have an Atlanta area code on your cell phone, you're going to get the Georgia Poison Center when you call from Mississippi because it is routed based on the area code you're calling from. Uh, and that's usually not a problem. We're happy to help people. There are some cases where we will actually um, put the person on hold and contact the local poison center for that particular state if the person needs to go to an emergency room and there's going to be additional follow-up required. Um, we're not as familiar with the hospitals outside of the state of Georgia. Uh, and like I said, we do try to help people no matter where they're calling from. Uh, and there are many times if it's a home caller, uh, that we're able to help them from start to finish. But there are occasions where we do put them on hold, get the other poison center on the phone, and then, uh, we hand the call off to them after getting the initial information and making the initial recommendations. So here's, um, before we move on to kind of some of the challenges of the role, one question I do have, and this is kind of going back to your previous experience, would you, because you said you did community pharmacy for 10 years, right? Right. Basically 10 years. Would you say that your experience there helped you with this current role or was there a lot of, or, or anything that was like particularly that was helpful that you kind of gained in that experience in community where it like translated really well over to this role? I think the main thing that translated well for me was the fact that I interacted with people in every aspect of my previous job. And I was used to talking to people, having people ask me questions and in retail pharmacy, you get all kinds of questions. I mean, some of them rather embarrassing, some of them completely out in left field that you would never have imagined you got that question. And the same thing holds true in this position as well. So the fact that I was already comfortable fielding questions from the lay public as a retail pharmacist, I think helped me in this position. Um, it did not prepare me adequately, I would say, for the clinical aspects of this job, which, you know, I'm, I have learned on the fly and continue to learn on the fly um, on an as-needed basis. You know, someone who comes from a hospital background working as a hospital pharmacist, uh, especially if they were like a clinical pharmacist, I think would probably have uh, a better handle on what's going on in the emergency room when the doctor calls me. So if I were, uh, if I had a clinical pharmacy background, I would have a, a, a much different take on what was happening. So some of the things I've had to learn on my own, they would already bring to the game. And in the same way, I think the ability to communicate with the public and ask insightful questions, that type of thing, I think I gained that from working as a retail pharmacist. I hope that answers your question. It, it definitely does. And the reason why I asked it is because I feel like it's an interesting conversation because, you know, a lot of people that work in community, phar- a lot of people are hesitant to work in community pharmacy 
because of, you know, whatever reason they, they deem. But I actually think that community pharmacy is undervalued in what it prepares you for. And I feel right. like while, you know, obviously someone that had a, like an awesome clinical background in toxicology, you know, maybe they did a PGY2 in toxicology would be readily ready for this role. But at the same right. time, I feel like the community pharmacist able to field questions, able to know what questions to ask for, what to listen for in the background, potentially, I feel like those are little things that you probably start to pick up over time by having the experience in a, in a community pharmacy. So that was kind of why I brought it up just because I, I, I had a hunch that there would be something that prepared you really well for this role. Um, and I feel like community pharmacy did that, not obviously not from the clinical standpoint, but just from everything right. else that sounds like is important for that role. Um, now, I think it's, you know, when, when I think about working at a poison center, I think about obviously like I, I imagine like the parent calling in a panic because they're you know, child took some medicine in their, in their cabin, which obviously is a terrifying situation. But I feel right. like one thing that really wanted me to, cause we had previously talked before this episode. And one thing that kind of sparked my interest about what you do was the emotional toll that it could potentially take on you. Um, because of the fact that someone that's calling you might be suicidal. What now the main question I want to ask though, is I, and I don't know if that would be the answer, but what are some of the challenges, like the real challenges that you see in this role um, that you face? That, that is one of the challenges um, in, in my mind. So, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up again. The trying to, I'm a very emotional person and I'm, I think I'm a very intuitive person. And when I talk to somebody I feel like I have connected with them and that may be a transient connection that lasts for five minutes, but it makes an impact on me. And when you become involved in a patient's care and you hear the, you hear the agony in the caller's voice, my daughter has ingested a hundred Tylenol or my, my daughter has taken a hundred Tylenol and drank a fifth of vodka. You hear the pain in their voice. And oftentimes you find out it's not the first time that it's happened. And the person's having the worst day of their lives, not to mention the patient who has actually taken the tablets, but the caller is also having the worst day of their life. And you're trying to be empathetic, provide help uh, to do the right thing at point A to get her to point B to get to point C to make sure we get her a good positive outcome. But at the same time, you're trying to offer emotional support. I think the challenge becomes to make sure that you're not continuing to draw water from a well and you're not putting water back into that well. So if you're a poison specialist, you need to make sure that you've got a network of people that you can open up to and vent about your frustrations and the pain that you're feeling, that type of thing. And I think that's true in any job, you know, where if you're working as a, a minister, a youth minister or, or something like that, you can't constantly minister to someone else's needs without having your own needs taken care of, be that emotional, psychological, spiritual, et cetera. Uh, and that's the thing that I have to remind myself of and make sure that I take time um, to have others give back to me and do for me to make sure that I'm not constantly just on the giving end of things, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. um, because it's easy if you're, if you're dealing with six calls in a row and they're all from people who have tried to kill themselves, that can get in your head if you're not careful um, and change your outlook on life. And you're like, you, you kind of start wondering, Hey, what's it all about? And mm -hmm. uh, what's so bad in this world that everybody is seeking a way out. 
Uh, and at that time, you kind of forget the good that you're doing, you know, that you're actually changing what's going on by participating in it. So sometimes it just helps to reframe the way you're looking at things. Uh, and instead of saying, hey, I had I had five suicide attempts today, it's like, hey, I helped five people who were trying to hurt themselves and we had positive outcomes. They're still with us and they're getting psychological treatment at this point and maybe things will be okay. So re- reframing the way you look at it, I think is helpful too. I'm not sure if that answers your question. Yeah, I think, I think it definitely does. I mean, I, you know, dealing with that type of uh, situations in healthcare, I mean, it, it could do bad to your, to your own like kind of well-being because you, again, you start to kind of question certain things, but then at times it can also put things into better perspective. So, but yeah, that definitely one of the more difficult, I think things in healthcare um, to deal right. with them among others. Um, any, anything else come to mind in terms of challenges or the roles, maybe just like more simple day-to-day things or anything? Time management is a, is a, an important thing. And no matter how much you manage your time, you still will not have enough time because, um, there are just a lot of moving parts in what we do. Uh, so I'm rushing constantly before I get another call to finish up my notes and my telephone calls for the previous call. So I, I get a call from a patient and I decide that they are, they've ingested a toxic amount of the substance. I decide to send them to the emergency room and they're symptomatic. I have to reach out to my toxicologist. I have to create a soap note. I have to follow up with the, hospital where they're going to uh, to let them know that they are going to arrive and what they should do once they get there. And then I have to follow up again later to make sure they arrive safely um, and then follow their progress throughout the night. So once you get about 10 or 12 of those types of calls over the course of an eight-hour shift, you've got a lot to juggle. Um, So just managing my time, I think, is one of the biggest challenges that I have. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I think staying current on the most recent information for a particular, excuse me, for a particular ingestion, uh, that's another challenge because your, your, your triage guideline might change for a particular substance uh, so that we decide, okay, we don't need to send them into the hospital for if they got this amount as long as they weren't trying to hurt themselves. Uh, so keeping up with what the most recent triage guidelines, any changes in the recommendations for treatment, um, just staying up with all the particular, if you think of the number of plants, chemicals, drugs, et cetera, that are available to the average person in the world, just trying to keep up with the most important ones over time and what the treatment guidelines are for those drugs, that's a challenge. Now, you, you, um, you've mentioned resources a couple of times and, you know, you've also mentioned kind of looking at literature when making decisions. Um, is there specific resources that you like, you know, specifically go to to rely on? Is it all scattered? Um, give, give us some like a little bit more insight as to what you mean by like resources and literature. They, they are scattered, first of all. There are a number of them. But the ones that we lean on the heaviest are micromedics and poison decks, um, which are part of the. IBM Watson uh, medical computer database. Um, we rely on that heavily. I would say our, our, the resource we use the absolute most is Poison Dex. Uh, and that resource gives us monitoring parameters, recommended labs that we should uh, order, treatment guidelines based on whether or not it was a mild to moderate overdose or a severe overdose, 
and then treatment um, guidelines. And finally, um, observation time, um, whether or not they should be observed in the hospital, whether they should be admitted, uh, whether or not they can be watched at home, and what the time period would be for when we would expect symptoms to happen if they're going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the lion's share. Now there are some there are some printed resources. Um, there's Goldfranks, I'm sorry, Goldfinch's uh, toxicology. I said Goldfinch. I'm sorry, it's Goldfranks toxicology. Uh, that's a massive book and it's an authoritative source on poisoning uh, and on toxicology. Uh, they just came out with a new edition of that book and we, we use that heavily also. But when you're in a critical situation and time is of the essence, you want to be able to pull up a web link and go to hyperlink information that can quickly take you from point A to point B. And in that respect, Poison Dex is the resource of choice for us. Interesting. All right. A random question too, now that I'm, I'm kind of thinking about resources and like all the, all the workload that you said you have during a given time period, are there other, are there other people that are supporting you on calls or on people on hold for a long time? I guess that's one question. And then another question is the people that are supporting you that might also be working at that center that are fielding calls, are they only pharmacists or are there other healthcare professionals that are fielding some of these calls as well? So we've got multiple layers at the Poison Center of personnel, and the people on my level, we're called spies, uh, which is specialist in poison information. You've got um, senior spies who have been there longer and are more knowledgeable, and we lean on them, first of all. If, we're a, if you're a junior spy, you lean on a senior spy more. <laughs> they couldn't, they beyond, couldn't come up with a yeah. better acronym? I mean, it sounds like you guys are doing... <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think if you if you rearrange it, it can be bad no matter how you how you yeah. rearrange it. <laughs> uh, but but we call ourselves spies. Um, and if I ask a question of a senior spy, and it's outside of their level of comfort in answering it, then I escalate it to the toxicologist. But I also have a set of guidelines that I follow about when to call a toxicologist. You know, there there are certain situations if I have three or more people that are part of an exposure. Say there's a carbon monoxide exposure and there were there are three people involved, I automatically have to reach out to my toxicologist because that's that's beyond the threshold of where I can treat that by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other situations if I've if I've got a critical patient in the hospital, I have to reach out to my toxicologist. I don't try to feel that on my own. Uh, so I have a toxicologist on call twenty four seven. And if that toxicologist is on another call and I need him and I can't get him in a reasonable period of time, I have a follow, I have a secondary toxicologist who's on backup who can take the call. Um, and then beyond that, if there's, if things escalate beyond that and the toxicologist needs to speak to someone, he or she can speak to his attending physician who's on call for that night. And it can be escalated all the way up to the director of the poison center or to the medical director of the poison center. So there are several levels above you. So I don't feel like I'm making decisions in isolation. And I always feel like I've got someone who's got my back uh, if I don't have the resources that I need to respond to a particular situation. Nice. But, um, but, but at any given time, there may be five, six, or even seven of us spies building phone calls from the public during the shift. 
Uh, it just depends on the time of day and what our peak times are. Uh, we sort of, we resource the phone lines based on when we're expecting the peak to be. Mm-hmm. Um, now, are so all spies pharmacists? No, that's a good question. Uh, we have nurses, we have medical doctors, and we have pharmacists. Great. And we're working in those roles. All right. So I feel like we went through a lot of like the toughness of this job and in this role and some of the negatives about it. But what would you say are like the things that you love most about this role? I, when you're working in some jobs, uh, let's say I was working in fast food and I'm making food for the public. I can look at that altruistically and say I'm feeding the public. And that's a very worthy goal in life. So it really depends on your spin that you put on your job. But I can say truthfully that I'm helping people who are in a life-threatening situation and I'm helping them get a positive medical outcome the majority of the time in that. Now, even if I'm working in retail pharmacy, I can say, hey, I'm helping, some, I'm helping people get their medicine to live more happy and healthy lives. But it doesn't have the same grit and it doesn't have the same... I mean, I feel like we're in the actual trenches of healthcare. Uh, now, I'm not the nurse who is potentially bagging the patient on the table if that person is coding uh, in the hospital, but I'm right there with them over the telephone giving them advice on how they should handle the situation from a toxicology point of view. And I don't think there are that many jobs that you have where you can so directly impact the lives of people. Uh, and that's a, a big burden on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's really exciting and rewarding to know that you can go home and say, Hey, you know what? I think I helped save somebody's life tonight. That's, 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 that's a rush yeah. uh, to me. Yeah. I can definitely uh, see the, the, your, the scale of the impact where you're impacting people in life or death situations. Right. Uh, and I've never had anything like that in my life where I can say what I did you know, I worked in different jobs. I've worked. You know, I used to uh, art direct photo shoots for lingerie in one of my previous uh, jobs. And that was exciting. But at the end of the day, it was photography. I wasn't actually helping someone live through the night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that, that's, a, that's a big turnaround for me. Yeah. So what, what advice would you have for someone that is, uh, that would want to be in a role like this, uh, whether they be in pharmacy school and they're thinking about like, they want to direct their career towards this, um, or even the pharmacist kind of similar to where you were, uh, where you've been out in the field for a while, um, in a particular role, but you wanted to be in this one. What, what advice would you give to maybe either both of them the same or different pieces of advice to each one of those groups? I would say the first one comes around speaking to the public, communicating with the general public and with medical professionals. Uh, if you want to do this job, I would say doing something to become comfortable with either public speaking or just communicating day-to-day, I think, is helpful. Um, I joined Toastmasters, which I think is a great organization that helps people become more comfortable speaking to people, speaking to crowds. Uh, I think it's a great resource for that, but some have something in your life where you are forced outside of your comfort zone, um, and are forced to talk to people. 
Uh, in pharmacy school, we had to do a seminar my senior year, and we basically had to attack a subject, um, present it to our class, and speak intelligently about it for about an hour and a half uh, and field questions from our professors and from other students in the class. That was like the first time I was really grilled verbally. Uh, and it was, it was grueling then, but it, it did so much for me and for my self-confidence when I actually came through it. And the next time I was asked to do something like that, it was easier. And the next time it was easier after that. So I think finding some way that you can become comfortable speaking to the lay public and to medical professionals, I think is good. Um, Besides that, I would say becoming comfortable reading medical literature and then interpreting that for doctors and nursing staff. Um, if you can do that in a way that provides actionable and timely information to them, they are very appreciative. But when you, if you haven't spent any time in the literature and trying to interpret um, articles and recommendations in the literature, just getting comfortable with that vocabulary and say, with uh, the medical descriptions of certain uh, ailments. So instead of sweating, we're talking about diaphoresis uh, or fasciculations. Just becoming comfortable with the vocabulary and being able to communicate in that vocabulary helps you when you're talking to doctors and nurses. Now, I feel, um, like, I feel like that's a skill set. Interpreting medical information and delivering that information to a healthcare professional versus a patient, I feel like are are two different skill sets. Would you say that one spy is like, should be able to proficiently do both of those? Or would you say that there's like in the organization, there's, there's more people that take calls that are more directed from a healthcare professional versus like the lay public? No, I think it's both in one person. I mean, you need to be able to do it with the lay public and, and with the lay public, it's also important to be able to console them and let them know in a, in an, uh, a firm way that things are going to be okay and that hysterics are not going to help uh, with this situation. And you try to bring your level of calmness and communicate it to them and give it to them. Uh, so in every phone call that we have with the public, you know, we say multiple times that everything's going to be just fine. Let me get some more information from you and you continue to dig deeper, but you continue to uh, reassure them throughout the phone call that everything's going to be just fine. So we try to do that. And you're, you try to tailor the way you talk based on who your audience is. So I certainly don't say that to the doctors. Everything's going to mm. be fine. Just don't worry about <laughs> yeah. it. You know, I don't think they would respond in the same manner. Uh, but you're you're basically expected to have the ability to talk to the lay public and to medical professionals. And I think if you have worked in pharmacy, uh, especially in retail, uh, you're, you I think you're going to have that comfort level talking to the public and I know for myself working at Publix, I routinely talked to doctors on the phone when I needed to clarify something. Or if I had a, an, had a situation where uh, we were recommending that a doctor change treatment based on medication therapy management guidelines, that type of thing, you become used to talking to doctors. So I think an average pharmacist is going to have those skills if they've worked in retail. They just may need to continue to try to strengthen those skills. Mm -hmm. over time. Um, and then finally, I think it, I was not as familiar coming from a retail background, but knowing the clinical side of things, I think is extremely helpful in this role, knowing typical lab values and what they're used for 
and what might be wrong if one of those values is outside the normal range. That's important to know. Uh, knowing that a certain lab can be performed in-house and that others have to be sent out and how much time is required to get them back, that's important. Uh, kind of knowing the ins and outs of a hospital situation, when you can call and when shift change is going on and you don't call during that time, knowing that type of thing makes your job easier uh, and makes transition from one case to another, I think, a lot more seamless. Nice. All right, so I'm going to try to wrap this up here. I got some two random questions for you. Uh, the okay. first one is, what uh, what are you currently reading now? What's interesting that you that you might be picking up that you're reading that might be interesting to listeners? I'm, I'm learning everything that I can right now about China. I think China is <laughs> interesting. China is China is changing uh, the world for a lot of people. You know, it's changing all the the rules of the game basically. So I'm currently reading Henry Kissinger's book that came out several years ago called On China. And it basically recounts America's long history with the People's Republic of China. And he looks at some of the past and the lessons that can be learned from history and points to future possibilities that can exist between our countries. Uh, great book. I'm halfway through it right now. Right before this, I read Radium Girls by Kate Moore. And that's basically the story of the women who contracted radiation poisoning working in factories, painting watch styles in the 1920s. Uh, they all suffered gruesome deaths, but uh, they became instrumental in reforming the workplace rules that still impact us today. So those are the types of books I'm reading. I like to read. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Did you hear about the whole China rocket, like Houston Rockets thing that's going on right now? The, the Which Rockets, you said? The Houston Rockets, the NBA team. Did you hear about like... No, 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 no. I have, China? I, I, no, yeah, I did hear about that, actually. I, I think uh, one of the... I saw that today. One of our, God, I can't remember who apologized because he basically came out in support of the protesters in Hong Kong. Yeah, I think he, he tweeted something that was kind of like just kind of showing like solidarity with uh, with what's going on in Hong Kong. And he right. was a general manager of the Rockets. And right. he tweeted that. And then um, China uh, or I guess like, you know, certain businesses. Their basketball China, association. Yeah. yeah, I think their basketball association, you know, came out and made a statement. Yeah, so it's pretty it's pretty interesting how you you kind of mentioned the impact it's having on the world. I feel like, although yeah. this could seem subtle, it, it's going to show. It, it really is showing them flexing kind of the the power that they have um, as a country right. with their business. Um, so it's right. it's really interesting to kind of follow this as a use case of like business relations, international business relations going forward. Well, I think it it would do anybody good, especially anybody under the age of forty. To learn as much as they can about China, about how, and China is not a monolith, but how China looks at the world, um, Chinese psychology, and the history of the last 150 years to see what's going to happen going forward. Because China is going to be a major player in the world, more so than what they already are. Yeah. Um, and if you're not I think we don't need to treat them as adversaries. We need to engage with them as partners, but we need to learn to understand each other and where we're each coming from um, and realize that we don't always have the same end goal in mind. Um, but I think there's there's a tremendous amount of good that can be done if if America and China could come together with the same execution goals in mind. 
Yeah, I'm, um, I'm wondering if, if it's funny that you just mentioned end goal in mind versus execution goals in mind, because I'm wondering if it's I'm wondering if, if there it, it actually is usually the, the same end goal, but the execution of it is usually different. Surprisingly, I think the answer to that is no, that I don't think the end goal is always the same. Um, I think in the West, if you look at our, if you look at the way we look at um, goals like in our military ventures around the world, um, a lot of our policy is very short-sighted. And when you have an administration that stays in office for four years, they've got a limited amount of time before they're up for re-election for them to try to get their policy achieved. I think there's a much longer view in China. I mean, they've got a 4,000-year history in China. Uh, and I think their goals are often different, uh, and their timeline for getting them done is different as well. So I think sometimes we have an, a sense of urgency here that I think China does not feel because they're not they're not on the same time clock that we're on. Mm-hmm. Um well, that is quite interesting. I, it's it's interesting, and I'm 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 just beginning to get my feet wet and uh, reading about China. But uh, it's a fascinating country. Um, they've got a fascinating history, and I think the the future has a good chance of belonging to them. I think if you look at um, predominance of Great Britain in the 17, 1800s, 1900s early 1900s, and then how America became, the 20th century became the American century. Uh, I think the 21st century is wide open right now, but it has a strong possibility that it will it will definitely be the Asian century, uh, and China will lead that, I think. Very, very interesting. Okay, if you had to take one person out to dinner, and that person had to be alive and famous, who would that person well, be? Alive and, and what? Alive and uh, famous. Or- Alive and famous. Yeah, so they have to have a Wikipedia page. And it can't be any of the presidents, like the last couple of presidents, or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. So I would say Neil deGrasse Tyson. Ooh, good one. Uh, I think he's an amazing man. If you had asked me several months ago, I would have told you... Uh, oh, who would I have told you? No, I think I would have, I would have stuck with that. I, yeah. I think he's, he's, he's an incredible communicator, uh, and he can explain things to you and explain extremely difficult concepts in a way that it's very approachable by the lay public. Yeah. I've, I've uh, read one of his, well, not, I didn't read, like I heard one of his like audio books recently, which was, um, I think it was like, uh, astrophysics in a hurry or something. And it was definitely, right. um, pretty amazing. So I agree. I, I, I think he's amazing. And I'm glad you said you listened to an audio book because when I tell you that I have read these two books recently, I re- I mean that I listened to the audio books. Uh, I have found over the last two years that audiobooks have just transformed the way I gain information. Um, I don't often have an hour or two to lay down at night and read a book, but I'm in my car probably three to three and a half hours a day. And I spend all of that time in the car listening to either a podcast or to an audiobook. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's nice to be able to line up. What am I going to read next? What am I going to read next? And know that I'm going to actually have time to, listen to it in the car. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this has been a very interesting conversation. So if anyone wanted to connect back with you, um, what would be the best way for them to do that? Uh, with one of my two email addresses, probably the easiest, my personal address is philiphouse at me.com. That's me.com. And I have one L in the name Philip. So 
P-H-I-L-I-P-H-O-U-S-E at me.com. And then my work email address is phouse, P-H-O-U-S-E, at georgiapoisoncenter.org. Awesome. And I'll definitely put that in the show notes for anyone uh, interested in contacting uh, contacting you after the episode. Philip, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. I enjoyed our time together. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Make sure to connect with me on any of your favorite social media platforms, whether that be Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, you can connect with me personally on there. Uh, just search my name. You'd find me, Richard Waith, or you can connect with RX Radio. Check out some of the cool memes and articles we're posting on social media. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate it, and I hope you have a great rest of your day.